Welcome. We are so glad to be here with you. Um, this one is A New David, The Heart of God. And we're going into Psalms 1 through 46, which is just an incredible amount of chapters to cover as usual. But it is what our lot is. So we're going to just jump right in. And I'm Farrell. And I'm Rhonda Pickering. And give us a like or a thumbs up and let's roll with it. All right. So A New David, The Heart of God is kind of that title is taken from 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, where Samuel is telling Saul that he is has been uh, re- replaced because of his disobedience. And Samuel tells him that the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. And so a lot of us have the question sometimes, what? What was it about David? What was it about his heart? I mean, he's the only one in Scripture that it says that he's a man after God's own heart. And it's at a time when David is being made the leader over the people. And so that's connected with this description of him as a man after God's own heart. And as we begin and as we jump into the book of Psalms, of course, David wrote about half of them. He wrote 73 of 150 Psalms. And we're going to find out why David, King David, is such a hero in the theology of the Jewish people. I don't think it was that he was um, a greater deliverer than everybody else. It it has to do with David being used by the Lord as a type and a shadow of the Davidic covenant, of the covenant that he made with his people Israel. And as we go into the book of Psalms, you know, sometimes we think when we do Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, we think, okay, I'm just going to read through and I'm going to pick my favorites and and it's going to be like an anthology of it's like going through our own hymn book and picking your favorite right song. right pick your favorite hymn you know type thing and that's not the way the book of psalms is written at all as a matter of fact it's it's highly structured and here we go with me and my love of literary structure so what we are going to do is we're going to take a look for just a minute at how they pieced the book of Psalms together. There are two videos um, that I think are huh, huh, the best videos on the book of Psalms. And we're going to have three weeks on the book of Psalms. So I think it would be so worth your while to go out and look at the videos that are produced by the Bible Project. And we're going to have uh, Mike put these links in the videos for us because the one is called How to Read the Book of Psalms. And these pictures are taken from that video. It, and these are just really short videos. You'll, you'll love them. This one takes you into the heart of the Book of Psalms. It explains that it is divided into five sections. And when they assembled these psalms and poetry of the Jewish people, they assembled it with David in the first couple of sections of the book of Psalms, that's where most of the Psalms are that are written by King David. And they are, they, they explore the gamut of his emotions, of the things that he went through. And you remember that it was actually Solomon that built the temple, right? 
So in all these Psalms where David's heart is yearning for the temple, what is, what is the temple that he is familiar with? Tabernacle in the wilderness. That's right. It's going to be the tabernacle in the wilderness. That's going to be David's temple. But he, of course, is going to put all the materials together for <clears throat> the building of that temple by his son Solomon. So here in the top left of your slide, you can see that David is yearning for the temple that will be built. And this is crucial in the theology and in the heart of the Jewish people. And I actually believe this is part of the reason that the scriptures tell us that David was a God after man's, a, a man after God's own heart. Boy, I said that one backwards. Doing too much Lorenzo Snow. We'll get to him in just a minute. <laughs> but what we, what we have here is a, a picture of a national yearning for the temple that is going to be portrayed in the Psalms of David, okay? Plus, of course, you know that he suffers. We just did a lesson on Job, and and David is going to go through immense sufferings, and he's going to be a stellar example of being faithful to the Lord during suffering, okay? So again, this is going to be a type of the Jewish people, being faithful to God, while they yearn for their temple, then their temple, then that is going to make it so that when you get to the end of the book of Psalms, you're going to have all of your poetry about the millennial kingdom, about this time period that they're yearning for all this time, the time period that we yearn for. When Christ will reign as King of Kings, their Messiah will come and we will have a thousand years of peace. And so the establishment of that millennial kingdom, that end time hope of David, is how they arranged the Psalter. That's how they put it together. They have all the, the hopes of David in the beginning and then they have all of the messianic prophecies there of the kingdom in the end at that time when prophetically they will return they will build another temple and god will be the temple of the millennium of course in the middle what are we going to have between david and the building of the first temple there's going to be some de temple destructions in the middle sure. and then, then what do we have today do they have a temple no they do not so they lost it with Herod's temple. There in the middle of the of the book, you're going to have the stories of the people living without a temple and yearning for that temple. Okay, so this book of Psalms, the way it's assembled, is a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. Wow. It's, it's pretty amazing. That's fascinating. All right. Concept. So here again, we can see that in our exile, and in some ways, Ephraim is in exile amongst the nations, right? And that was part of his patriarchal blessing in Genesis 49, that he would be a multitude of nations or 
a fullness of the Gentiles, if you translate that alternately, nations being Gentiles and fullness being multitude. And so it was part of our mission to be scattered and for Israel to be scattered. But it's also part of prophecy that we will return and again become a nation with God as our king. So here in Babylon on the rivers of exile, we read the book of Psalms and we vision the rebuilding of the temple and the millennial kingdom that is promised to all who hope for the coming of the Messiah and the return of the kingdom of God. Which is which is something I hope for, for sure. Exactly. <clears throat> All right, so this is a, a screenshot from the second video that I wanted you to watch. That first one on the hope of the temple through the book of Psalms is um, called How to Read the Book of Psalms. It's done by the Bible Project again. And then this one that you're looking at is part of a video that they do called An Overview of the Book of Psalms. And all you have to do is type in Psalms in the Bible Project and you'll pull up both of those videos. But again, we'll put the link in for them. We're not going to go through this whole explanation this time. We're just going to focus on Book 1. Psalms is divided into five divisions. And they're often referred to as books because... They kind of parallel the, the five books of Moses. And when you think about it, and you think about... works. Yeah, you think about the Garden of Eden in Genesis as being the first temple, and the exile from the Garden as being the destruction of a temple, and an exile then we are going to start in Genesis, and then we have an exodus. That exodus is the children of Israel's exodus out of Egypt, but it's also the exodus out of the Garden of Eden. And so there's multiple layering, layering going on here <clears throat> in the book of Psalms, but it's a journey. It's a journey from the fall to the redemption, the deliverance, and the temple that then that wandering and that hope for the messianic kingdom that is portrayed in both the Torah, the five books of Moses, as well as the book of Psalms. Now, just a little bit of the structuring before we move on. Psalm 1 and 2. Of course, these are poet poetry, the poetry of the Hebrew people. And their heart is embedded in here, and it's represented by King David. You're going to see this as we look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually just like section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants. They were placed in the front of the book. Kind of a preface. Yes, to be a preface, okay? And it's going to talk about the Torah, and then it's going to talk about a Davidic king in Psalm chapter... I keep saying chapters <laughs> in Psalm number 2. Now... We just fast forward all the way to the end of the book, and you can see that when we get to Psalm 146 to 150, these were put in the hymn book. Each one, you can tell that they're literally being manipulated here because each one begins with hallelujah and ends with hallelujah. And then Psalm 147 begins with hallelujah, ends with hallelujah. Hallelujah is a command to praise God. And so the grand finale of the book of Psalms is going to be these five 
hymns of praise to God for the establishment of his kingdom when it becomes a reality. So this is super exciting. And we're going to jump right and we're going to jump right now into Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Before you read any of the Psalms, actually before you read the Old Testament, especially the the poetic prophets which would include Isaiah, we need to understand that we in the western Greek culture, when we think of poetry, we think of rhyme and meter, rhythm right Right, okay which is interesting because both of those are lost when it's translated into another language yeah it'd be hard to keep right right like yeah but hebrew poetry isn't based on rhyme and meter they do do a lot of fun things with with words that sound the same and all those things and yeah that gets lost in translation too but the point is is that their poetry was more of a theology stated in parallel and you can you can have three different basic three different kinds of parallels they are the synonymous parallel and an example of that is going to be Psalm 15 where it says says Lord who shall abide in thy tabernacle who shall dwell in thy holy hill so what is in parallel with abide dwell Okay, and what's in parallel with the tabernacle? The hill. The hill or the holy hill, okay? Now, what's amazing about this is this is also really cool because the prophets kind of tighten up their definition on something. If you read it properly, you can't just say, oh, let's, it's the tabernacle. I was going to say this is almost where Isaiah modeled it after. Yes, and that's its work after these because David came long before Isaiah. Yes, and well, Psalms was written long before Isaiah. And what we are going to have here is we are going to have the law of first mention when a prophet does something and uses verbiage a certain way, other prophets are going to build on what was done before, they're not going to conquer contradict what was done before therefore what blew my mind is that when i was studying isaiah and everything i realized everything isaiah was doing with all of his little devices and and techniques he was doing they're also in the book of psalms right and i didn't right and i didn't know that and all the you know all of a sudden i'm i'm studying in the book of psalms and i'm like Oh my gosh, those are all code names in Isaiah. And then, you know, really I'm getting it backwards. Isaiah's names are all code names in the book of Psalms. I mean, so many things. We're going to look at one big, the main heart of Isaiah and how it's in the book of Psalms today. But also, we're going to see that they're all throughout the Bible, all through all throughout the Hebrew poets, they're going to use parallelism. And parallelism is super cool because the second sentence will help define the first sentence. It helps you not take what they say out of context. All right, so there's different kinds of parallelism. There's the the one where they say the same thing in two different ways, like we just saw. Then there's one called an antithetical parallelism. I think we're probably finally getting used to that word. It means kind of like the opposite okay and here's an example for evildoers shall be cut off but those who wait upon the lord 
will inherit the earth. Right. So it's the opposite thing happening there. And you can actually you can actually play with it. You can actually pin the words and say, oh my gosh, let's see. Those who wait upon the Lord are the opposite of evildoers. I mean, you could read all kinds of things into the parallelisms that are completely legal and legit. So because that is exactly what the poets wanted you to do with what they wrote. Okay. Um, a, um, a synthetic parallelism or a complementary parallelism is one that just expands and, and adds to the parallel statement, which is really fun because sometimes when one is unclear, you can go to the second parallel and you can get an understanding of what the poet meant. And an example of this one is in Psalm 19. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's giving you a four, four parallel statements about the law of God that add depth and clarity, okay, in synthetic parallelism. We could go into other forms of it, um, but those are your basic three. So let's jump into Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the main theme of this Poem, poem or psalm, the reason they put it in the front of the book of Psalms is because of the line that says, Blessed is the one who meditates on the Torah. So Psalms is going to become the new Torah for future generations as they move into the these prophecies of an end time restoration of the house of Israel. Okay, I put in here a real quick video uh, clip for you to look up. I didn't put the address there because it's super easy. You just go online and you type in Psalm 1 and so many of the Psalms, you can just type them in and you can get like someone reading the Psalm with a guitar playing in the background. Mm. It's so cool. And of course, these are poems. These were meant to be heard. They were meant to be heard through poetic reading, and they were meant to be sung in in songs of the heart. And so let's um, let's realize that in Psalm one, that we're going to divert now from, uh, I, which is really sad because what we're going to do is we're going to sit here and talk about Psalms, right? Mm -hmm. That that's kind of a little anticlimactic, <laughs> you know. Maybe you should go to your scripture app and just press audio play on Psalms and listen to it while you're driving. Pop out your guitar. Yeah, pop out your guitar, hum along, you know. But these these are songs of the heart meant to be heard. All right, in in when we talk about the law in Hebrew thinking, we run into a doctrine called the doctrine of the two ways. And the theology of the book of Psalms, running through the book, is the theology of the Old Testament. It's the theology of the ancient world. And so you have to be familiar with this doctrine of the two ways. By the way, it's all over the Book of Mormon. The road less traveled. Well, yeah, that one is actually just a tiny bit different. But this one is kind of the idea that when you make, there's only two ways. You're either going to choose life, I'm, I'm quoting Alma here, you're going to choose life or you're going to choose death. And there's no middle ground.
Okay, you're, you're going to have the ways of eternal life or you are going to have the ways of eternal death. All right. So listen to this. See if you can hear the doctrine of the two ways in verse one. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. We're talking about people who love the law here. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. For the Lord God knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So here, we can, so see, here, we can see in verse 6, there's, and there's, it's enumerated in the verses in between, but for sake of time here, I'm just showing you that there is a way of the righteous and a way of the ungodly. Okay? Great. Now, what is super fun... I have to chase a rabbit for just a minute. What is super fun about this is it goes into the theology of the Hopewell Indians. Okay? So what you see here is you see a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. And this, this is the what we see from Earth as known as the Great Rift. It's like a dark shadow in the Milky Way. So my question is, is that a nothing or is that a something? What do you, what, what do you say? Well, it's, it's a cloud that separates your vision from seeing into the center of the galaxy. Right. We were actually out in Hawaii and we were on the top of Mauna Kea. We were looking at stars and I was saying, oh my gosh, look at, look at the Great Rift right there and everything. And there was an astronomer there that started telling us about the Great Rift. And he said that if you look at that bright spot down in the corner of that picture by by the constellation Sagittarius, this is what we is the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And what he said is, if there wasn't dust and debris making that cloud between us and the center of the galaxy that we see as the Great Rift, that the Earth would be overcome by the light from the center, from the center of, the of the galaxy. And you can you can visualize that when you look at pictures of uh, other galaxies, the Andromeda galaxy, and you see how bright the centers are. Right. And you see us as in the Milky Way. You think, why aren't we just lit up by the center of the galaxy? Well, the answer is the center of the galaxy is I use the word veiled. Exactly, and that's the same word that Joseph Smith used in his Egyptian alphabet and grammar. He said that God had veiled His throne so that the planets would not be overcome by his glory. I just think that's so cool. But anyway, from our simplistic plane, stand on the earth and look at the sky point of view, what it looks like is that there is a division in the Milky Way. And if you kind of look at that path that goes off to the left, it, it kind of leads to the middle of nowhere. Right. And that's where the ungodly shall perish according to Native American teaching of the stars, yeah. okay? Teaching of the stars, yeah. okay? And then the path on the right, however, leads to the lights. It leads to the place of the fathers. And it leads to what we know of astronomically today. And this is funny because they didn't know it then because they didn't have the Hubble telescope and everything. But the place of the fathers is actually the center of the galaxy from from what we know today so it's just it's just fun this doctrine of the two ways is as ancient as a father and a son telling biblical stories in the sky 
All right, let's take a look now at Psalm number two. Psalm number two is placed at the front of the book of Psalms because it is the Davidic covenant. They are going to take all of their hopes, all of their dreams for a temple and a righteous king and a millennial reign of peace from the hopes and dreams of David. Now we even know that there's more to it than that because there's a covenant involved. It is not just a covenant with Israel, but the Davidic covenant is a model of the atonement of Christ. Well, he was the ultimate king. The ultimate Davidic king, right? The ultimate son of David. We're actually going to see that in the scriptures in just a minute. But we have to, especially those of us who hope to be part of the kings and queens of the Gentiles that go and rescue and bring people into safety in Zion in the end time, we have to understand the Davidic covenant. And we have to understand the hopes and the dreams of the Jewish people because we're going to become one with them through the events that will unfold according to Ezekiel 37. The yes. house of Judah and the house of Joseph will become one in the millennium. And there's also the tribes of Israel in there as well, if you read that carefully. We often think of it as two branches. It's actually three. All right, so what is the Davidic covenant? God said to King David in 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your de a descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever. So we think for right out of the gate on the Peshat or the plain sense level, we're thinking of David has a son and his name is Solomon, right? Oh, you're talking ancient David. Right, this is to David gotcha. in Second Samuel okay. 7, right? You're probably thinking prophetically, sorry about that. Um, so... What we're talking about here is that on the simple level, David is being promised that he will have a son and Solomon will reign. But here's the question. Was Solomon's throne established forever? Obviously not. Yeah, he apostatized in the end. Okay, so there is another level of this prophecy. A son of David that will have a kingdom and a throne that will last forever. And that it will be a descendant of David. That's why in Matthew it's so important that we show the lineage of Christ as a descendant of David, of King David. Not just because Judah was supposed to be reigning as kings, but because it brings the people under a Davidic covenant that follow a Davidic king. Okay, so that covenant in review being when the king is faithful to God, and we think about this in the time of King David, the king is faithful to God, and the people are faithful to the king, the people are protected. What happened after David sinned? Things fell apart. You had yeah. Absalom try and kill his father. You had Abijah try to take the kingdom when David was on his deathbed. Okay, so we have a type of a Davidic covenant, but David didn't, didn't make the grade for that covenant in an eternal capacity. Okay, at least not yet. He didn't make a full 
potential of it. Exactly. Like Joseph Smith said, he didn't receive the fullness of the keys of Elijah. Okay. We talked about that in our lesson on David and, and Solomon. If you haven't seen that one, Amberly Nelson gives such a great clip at the end of that on King David. Everybody needs to see it. But what we want to explain here is that in Jewish theology, they are waiting for a son of David to come in the end time that will fulfill the promises made to David in the Davidic covenant. And most of us in the Christian world, we think, well, Jesus came, they missed it. Okay. But if you went to a synagogue, the rabbis would tell you there, there is no way that Jesus was our David because he ain't reigning. The, the kingdom of God isn't here on the earth. We're still being persecuted and we're still scattered and we're not gathered yet. And all of these things are attached to the prophecies of the end time David. And so you, you won't find some rabbis who are really quite smug about it and think, oh, yeah. and they kind of treat it like anybody that thinks that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Davidic covenant doesn't know his scriptures. I mean, that's, right. that's kind of the attitude that they have. And in some ways, they're right <laughs> because the kingdom hasn't been established yet. And there are many that teach, well, wait a minute, Jesus is coming again, and he is going to fulfill all those prophecies of the establishment of the kingdom. And in a way, that's true as well. But you start running into all kinds of knots in the scriptures. Well, wait a minute. Does Jesus come and build the temple that he returns to? It says that David builds the temple. So, you know, how does this work? Yeah. Right? Tell about that quote of Brigham Young. Oh, yeah, the quote about Brigham Young. The the Latter-day Gentiles. Yeah, he says in the end time, the Gentiles will do the exact same thing that the Jews did when Jesus came. Okay, so what what he means by that is that the gospel isn't going to be taken from the Gentiles and returned to the house of Israel just because, on a whim, just because, you know, um, I think it's time, let's do this. No, the Gentiles have to do something as radical against the covenant as the Jews did did in the first coming. And that's a quote from Brigham Young. I should have put it up there. I'm about to put up some quotes from Joseph Smith. So you don't think I'm just blowing smoke with all this, okay? What you see there on the bottom of the screen is an actual painting from the Temple Institute in Jerusalem where they are preparing to build this temple. It's a rendering. They're they're preparing to build this temple that they have dreamed of for 2,500 years since David wrote the Psalms. Well, well, actually, it's more 2,000 because they had Herod's temple. Well, I understand that they built a temple and everything. Ezra's Herod's temple. It's kind of Ezra's temple remodeled by it. Right. So the first temple, we have the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then the first temple is Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple gets destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar comes and sacks Babylon. Which we kind of went through. Which we kind of have already been through the history of that. Okay. Then Ezra's going to go back, and they're going to rebuild another temple. They call it the second temple. But it is nothing compared to the glory of Solomon's temple, right? Now, by the time we get to the time of Christ, Herod is going to decree that we're going to restore 
Ezra's temple. We're going to restore that second. A big remodel project. A big remodel project. But it's still, the Herod's temple is still called the second temple. It's the still the same temple remodeled, right? Yeah, pretty big remodel, but yes. So when we refer to the third, and, and of course that temple was sacked in, 78, in AD 70 when Titus of Rome came in and it was burned to the ground. And, and the words of Jesus Christ, not one stone was left upon another. So that was the end of the second temple. Now, since the time of Christ, they have had, they have had no temple because of the uh, controversy over the property, which is kind of fascinating when you think about since the time of Joseph Smith, there's been no temple built in Jackson County because of a controversy over the property. Hmm. Okay? All right. So you can you can begin to see when you wrap your head around this, that this is about us. This is about this is about all of us. And we all have the same hopes and dreams for this millennial kingdom. It's very connected with the building of the third temple. As a matter of fact, this rendering that we are talking about here was, was uh, what do they call it? It was put, painted from the plans in the Bible. In Ezekiel chapters 44. Yeah, they tried to create the plans based off of the The angel gave Ezekiel the plans for the third temple. Okay, and it's real. And you either have to tear out those pages or <laughs> you allegorize it or try and wrap your head around the Jewish hope for a third temple that they know is connected with a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and a restoration of Israel. Okay, and I'm going to show you that Joseph Smith knew this in just a minute, okay? But here we go in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, the very next verse, after I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, it says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And this is critical, because that is a Davidic covenant. The, the king is faithful to his father, God the Father, and that king becomes his son. And this was a promise to David. I will be David's father and he will be my son as the model for the beginning of the Davidic covenant going into effect. Okay. All right. It says, now this is interesting too. It says in the very next sentence, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with stripes of the children of men. Now what that, what that says is that this loving father is going to chasten him so that he keeps covenant. And he's going to teach him because he cha God chasteneth him whom he loveth. Okay. But it's fascinating that God doesn't do the spanking. Who does? Who does? The stripes of the children of men. He doesn't come down and stomp on Jerusalem. Babylon does. Right. Babylon comes in and sacks Jerusalem. Withdrawal. He doesn't come in and, and, and discipline when they reject Christ in his first coming. Rome comes in. Titus does a great job of destroying everything there. So that's what it means. He says it's when we apostatize, when we move away from, break our covenants enough, then we get subject to the stripes of the children of men. And the way God does that is simple. He's protecting us. 
All he has to do is let us have the consequence of our own choices, withdraw that protection, and then we suffer the stripes of the children of men, the consequences. All right, so now we're ready. Let's move into Psalm chapter 2. Of course, there's all kinds of beautiful poetic devices that are used in the hymns. And in in Psalm chapter 2, it's about the kings. Like we said, Psalm chapter 2 is going to establish that there is going to be a millennial king, a son of David, someone that will come in the end time that will restore the physical property, the promised lands. Now, if you're going to do all the branches of Israel, if you're going to restore the physical property to the descendants of Lehi, what promised land is that? And have they been restored to those promised lands yet? Okay. Fully in part. If we're going to talk about the Jews and they are going to be restored to the promised lands, that, according to the Old Testament we've talked about, was from the Nile to the Euphrates. Has that been, has that happened yet? Has there been a physical deliverer, a son of David, that came and restored the property? Only very slightly partially. And let's talk about Jackson County. Has there been, has there been a physical restoration of Jackson County as the New Jerusalem and Zion? None of these things have happened yet. So in this sense, the book of Psalms is our promise. It's our promise of a future king, our Messiah, and a building up of Zion in a real promised land. That has really been inherited. So we're going to have two kings at the beginning and the end of Psalms. It's going to be the kings of the earth. And they are taking counsel together against the Lord. Huh. Huh. Is this being prophetic right out of Psalm 2? Are there kings of the earth today setting themselves to taking counsel against the Lord? Taking him out of our schools, taking him out of our government, taking him out of, uh, who was it? Which president said that we're not a Judeo-Christian nation anymore? Well, that's kind of obvious, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to get it pulled down, right? Okay, so so if you look in the parallel in the bottom there, it says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, and be instructed. Serve the Lord with fear. Don't. Take for granted, like Thomas Jefferson said, that a just God will remain asleep forever. Okay, um, and so you can see that these we're talking about these kings of the earth that are are taking counsel against the Lord. Now, in the center, you're going to have yet have I set up my king on the holy hill of Zion. Now, of course, this psalm was written by David. So you remember when David is in exile and Absalom. Uh, is trying to take the throne. It actually, actually, it's happened a couple of times. Ishbosheth was trying to was the one that would tried to take it at first, but then David's actually going to get boosted out of Jerusalem, as and Absalom's going to come get in. Do you see that this is all paralleling destructions of temples and exiles, and I mean, it's being modeled by the life of David. All right, and then it says in verse three, this is what they're counseling together: Let us break their bands. Asunder. Now you're getting astronomical. There's a constellation named the Bands. 
tying the two fish that represent Israel, you remember, and cast away their cords from us. Those cords being God's commandments. Those are burdening us. Let, let us counsel against the Lord. And you can see it down there in nine, verse 9, but in 9 it's the antithetical. They're taking counsel to break the bands of the people of God. But down in the bottom it says that this king that God's going to set up is going to break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces of the potter's vessel. Okay, just for fun, the constellation Perseus is a Greek word for a hero in the sky that's going to rescue Andromeda, the, the bride, that in English, Perseus means the breaker. That will break them with a rod of iron. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That child that's born in Revelation 12 rules with a rod of iron. The, guys, all of our scriptures are pulling the phrases from the book of Psalms, right? Okay, so what's going to be the center? It's in the center of this chiasm about the establishment of God's king, a, a Davidic king on the holy hill of Zion. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. That is the exact same thing as the Davidic covenant when God told David in 2 Samuel 7, I will be your father and you will be my son. All right. Notice also that we have some highlights in gray here. The wrath that you see on your screen highlighted in gray throughout the book of Psalms is a code name. When we see God talking about his wrath in the end time, we've talked about it before. We're going to look in Isaiah Illustrated. And here we have, um, I'm looking on page 516 in our book, Isaiah Illustrated. That's on our website, the study guide for Isaiah. It has a whole list of names that are code names for this end time antichrist, this end time uh tyrant that that rules and comes to power and notice that in isaiah chapter 10 it says hail the assyrian because assyria conquered ephraim conquered the northern tribes he's used as the end time type for a con the conqueror that comes in hail the assyrian the rod of my anger he is he is a staff my wrath in their hand and that's why we talked about i will discipline him with the stripes of men the bad guy, the king of Assyria, the Antichrist in the end time, is God's wrath. He's the one that comes in and does the striping that it mentioned in 2 Samuel 7. He's the one that it's not God coming down here and and and, and engaging in, in terror. It is this wrath, this evil person that he withdraws the protection from. Remember, it says in the New Testament, the restrainer is withdrawn, and he comes to power. And he is very satanic. He is um, the beast spoken of in end time revelation. So here again, you can see that all these things that have happened to David are prophetic of an end time situation where we're going to have an end time David. And of course, we mentioned that it was so important. Look how often Matthew calls Jesus the son of David. And you can see it goes all throughout the New Testament there. Jesus Christ is the greatest model of a faithful Davidic king. And again, we are going to 
represent that the Davidic covenant, this king that is willing to suffer like King Hezekiah did for his people, that they can be delivered, is exemplified by Jesus Christ, who was willing to suffer that we could be re receive salvation. It's the same pattern of the Davidic covenant other than Jesus Christ was so much greater than any of the, I call them little Davidic kings with a small letter D, you know, um, that look, look what's in his hand in this picture. I love this. It has the earth in his hand. Because of the degree that he suffered and the glory that he chose to lay down, his power of influence doesn't just cover the earth. There's a lot of scriptures that point to many earths, like in Moses, that we'll be talking about in a minute. And what does he have in his hand? The rod. The scepter. The, the scepter and the rod with, with which these scriptures are talking about in a Davidic ruler, a rod of righteousness, a rod of justice. But this, this picture of the crown with the thorns on the one side and, and the golden crown on the other, to me, has become my new favorite the pic picture of what you were talking about with Job last time, the descent before the, before the ascent. Right. That's beautiful. All right. Just so that we all understand that, they're, that the, the Jews are not without grounds for their end-time fulfillment of the prophecies of David. Joseph Smith says on Teaching to the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 14 and 15, Christ in the days of his flesh proposed to make a Davidic covenant with them. The king was faithful to God, but were the people faithful to the king? No. But they rejected him and his proposals, and in consequence thereof they were broken off, and no covenant was made with them at that time. But their unbelief has not rendered the promise of God of none effect. No. For there was another day limited in David, which was the day of his power. And then... His people, Israel, should be a willing people. Joseph Smith also said on page 339, The throne and the kingdom of David is to be given to another by the name of David in the last days, raised up out of his lineage. And then Orson Hyde, and we've talked about this before, I'm just reestablishing that this is not a prophecy that has been fulfilled yet. Thou, O Lord, did once move upon the heart of Cyrus to show favor to Jerusalem. I must skip down to the bottom for time. And constitute Jerusalem as its capital and her people as a distinct nation and government with David thy servant, even a descendant from the loins of ancient David, to be their king. So that was Orson Hyde's dedicatory prayer in Jerusalem when he finally got there. All right, now we're going to start moving through the Psalms. One of the psalms in our next psalm in our reading was Psalm chapter 8. And this one is a pivotal psalm. I'm super glad that we we're reading it. Um, and it is because it is talking about man. We're in that first book of psalms. This is probably the heart of the first book of the chapters that talk about man. And it's when, man, when we see the humiliation, how small man is. Remember what Job said? He said that 
he realized that we we didn't we didn't have any business. Well, Moses says it too. Well, yeah. Check check this out. Let's read this one. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what 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 it is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visiteth him. I mean that's Moses and and how small man is. But then, the Psalm eight says, "For thou hast made him." a little lower than the angels, and has crowned him with glory and honor. And so, Heavenly Father has a plan to exalt us from our made-of-the-dust circumstances that we see here. And we often see this pictured in Scripture as a comparison. When you stand and look out at the stars, you realize how very small man is. Moses Moses saw it in chapter 1, verse 10, in the Pearl of Great Price. And it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength like unto a man. And he said unto himself, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never supposed. That's what you just said. Yeah, I was referring to that earlier. but Right. And so here we see it also in this picture of the universe and worlds without number have I created. And I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son, I created them, which is mine only begotten. That is what Moses saw. Now, again, there's a great music video um, by Shane and Shane for more popular praise music on Psalm 8. And the Bible Project has a super cool video commentary, visual commentary on Psalms chapter 8. What you see in the center of this slide is the a picture of the seven colors of the themes in Isaiah. Remember, he, he has seven themes in the first half and seven themes in the second half. And those themes are all in parallel, just like a chiasm, right, that, that we'll do. And then you see that the center theme there is going to be humiliation and exaltation so even in isaiah's theme you know that conceptually when we come from the last lesson of job you know humiliation and exaltation and i made the statement god isn't about protecting us he's about exalting us and he can only exalt us when we have a broken heart and a contrite spirit as a matter of fact you can link it through scripture that it is a broken heart and a contrite spirit that rends the veil. You know, I, I said it then, I'll say it again. Sometimes I'm not real comfortable with that, but it doesn't, but it doesn't matter. It is what it is. It is. And sometimes when we, we want, you know, gravity not to be gravity, especially when we fall down, fall down, but it is, it is, it is what it is, what it is. And it must needs be that there be opposition in all things. And it's a pattern in Genesis and the evening and the morning were the first day. Right. It's a pattern in Isaiah, humiliation before exaltation. Right. Okay. And it is the pattern of the, of the atonement of Christ. And what I'm trying to show you... The cyclical nature of eternity. It's the pattern of the Davidic covenant. It is the way in eternity that someone can help someone else to ascend. In Moses 37 to 39, he then sees the antithetical of that. He says, And God spake unto Moses, saying, The heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man. 
but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away in the heavens thereof, even so shall another come, and there is no end to my works, neither to my words. For behold, this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So even though for us, from our perspective, Christ is the center. From God's perspective, we are his center. And that is, is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's pure love. It's mind-blowing to me. Here you can see it in Psalm chapter 8. Notice the uh, bracketing or the inclusio, meaning it's the beginning and the end. You say the same thing, and then you want to know why? God is excellent? Well, look to the center. It's because what is man that thou art mindful of him? Even so, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. And here you can see what's, and you, you kind of will get this when you watch that little video clip on Psalm 8. If you do, if you will watch it, you can see that we have the establishment of the Davidic king in chapter 2. Then Psalms 3 through 7 are David's cries for restoration. He's been exiled and he's, he's pleading for the coming of, of him being restored to his throne so that he can protect the people. And then over in Psalms 9 through 14, on the other side of Psalm 8, you have the poor and the afflicted ones are the ones crying out in these Psalms. But 8 is the center of it all, that from the poor, from the broken heart and the contrite spirit, God is able to exalt. And it's beautiful, though, the imagery they use here, that out of the mouths of babes thou hast ordained strength. And look at this, because of thine enemies, in other words, not just arbitrarily or randomly, but because of what the enemies are doing, thou, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. And that will happen again in the end time. It's because of the half hour of silence and the persecution of the saints and their willingness to endure it and to suffer through it, that God will flip the tables and will bring judgment on the wicked and establish the birth of Zion, the kingdom of God. And there's your babies right in the middle of the poor being exalted, the humiliation being reversed, that prophetic imagery there. All right, we're going to move on now to Psalm 19, and you can see from this little diagram in Book 1 that Psalm 19 is the center. It's the heart of Book 1, and Psalm 19 is one of my favorites. Is it? Do you have a favorite? It's uh, the one, the astronomy one, the heavens declare the glory of God. Yeah. yeah. I would know that's my favorite, but it's a favorite. <laughs> It's another favorite. Oh, another favorite. Yes. Okay. So we're actually going to jump into verse 7 because there's some really cool things going on here. We've already showed you the parallelism between the law and the testimony and the statutes. It's interesting in this parallelism that it's intensifying as well. Often the parallels will intensify as they move on all the way down to the judgments and the fear of the Lord there. But then in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So the law of God is considered by the by the Jews. You know, we, we looked at it in that verse earlier where it said it was a rope around our neck and we were, we're going to fight against the God. We're going to fight against the Lord. 
that is just like even that's like foreign for in in a hebrew theology the law of god is the greatest blessing we have it's our protection it, it it's it's what makes us who we are and it's what leads us right and you're going to see this all through the book of psalms but i love this that on rosh hashanah which is yom teruah or the feast of trumpets um every year they celebrate um the the law and and wish for a happy new year and they will because the kings were inaugurated in the fall and this is it this is the fall of these right the political new year and they will even take honey and and put it on a stick and and have them touch their children touch the words of god the scriptures and and give them honey even from the time they're little mm. so that they associate sweetness the with, with the torah and the word of god okay and and it's, it's really beautiful and so you're seeing that psalm 19 literary in the structure in the structure is the center of the first book of of the book of the psalms and in 15 and 24 chapters 15 and 24 are in parallel we kind of skipped over 15 i'll show you the parallel when we when we do because we're not going to skip over 24 and um then you can see that in between in chapters 16 through 18 you have david praying for deliverance and then in chapters 20 through 23 you have the future kings deliverance so we so this is going to be messianic when we get to 20 through 23 okay so here we are in 19 here is an amazing song that you can go on by jason silver on psalm 19 all you have to do is type in psalm 19 video and you'll pick it up it's let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So Job and David sing of their redeemer and his love. All right, now we're going to back up to verse 1 in Psalm 19. My favorite, right? Another <laughs> favorite. Another favorite. And here's another psalm. I mean, if, if you want to hear the psalms, you've got to listen to the, to the music and the, and the words to music. And this one is done by, I like this one by Esther Mui, um, uh, called The Heavens Declare, where she sings these verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So when you look out at the stars at night, do you hear the words? How can you hear the well, words? We kind of experienced that a little bit on yeah. several occasions when we've gone on the mountaintop and Oh, yeah. And and that's kind of speaking spiritually. But the reality is that there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Meaning, that, the meaning is not lost. Meaning that there are things in the heavens that we've lost. And we're not hearing it. And we're not hearing it because we don't understand what they understood, what David understood. And, and that was that God meaning. named the stars. And that becomes critical. We're going to read it in the book of Enoch. Which is a and continuing with Psalm, that Psalm in, in verse five, the son, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. Okay, and so here we're establishing the sun in the ecliptic as the earth 
ro rotates around the sun, it looks like the sun is rotating through the ecliptic. And, you know, we're going to see Galileo in just a minute get in big trouble over believing that the earth rotated around the sun instead of the sun rotating around the earth. But um, his going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof, the warmth thereof. Now, in First Enoch, chapter 43, Hugh Nibley testifies that we now have the book of Enoch. And hence, we need not wait for it to be restored. We have the book of Enoch that they believed in in the early Christian church. And um, even stronger than his witness is that of the Savior and his followers who accepted the book, now called First Enoch, as scripture and quoted it as authentic. The fact that the Savior and his apostles accepted it as genuine and actually written by Enoch should be as a, regarded as a strong testimony in its favor. And the reason we know that it's the right book is because we used to think that... Um, Enoch was quoting the New Testament, but we found that in James and other places since the book of Enoch has been restored, we found several places in the New Testament where they're actually quoting it. And we didn't and even they know. Didn't name it. Yeah. yeah, we didn't even know that they were quoting Enoch. Enoch shares with us the great secret of the meaning of the stars. And so this is the part I wanted to read. I beheld another splendor in the stars of heaven. I observed that he called them all by their respective names. I inquired of the angel, and he explained to me secret things, what their names were. He answered, A similitude of those has the Lord of Spirits shown thee. They are the names of the righteous who dwell upon the earth, and who believe in the name of the Lord of, the, of Spirits forever and ever. So here we find that part of the secret of the stars is their association with names. Okay? Right. And that becomes key to understanding ancient biblical astronomy, which, of course, we're not going to have time to go into, but I'm going to show you a couple of keys for it. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. And we could go probably six lessons on biblical astronomy just from that verse. But if you were Lorenzo Snow, which way would you have written his famous couplet? Option one, as God is, man may become. As yeah, man once. is, God once was. Does that sound backwards? Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> Why didn't it work? That's not my expertise. No. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just so glad work. you knew it didn't work, okay? Because what we did is we put man at the center. We said, as God is, man may become. As man is, God once was. You see, man is in the center of that couplet. I got you. Okay, so here is the way it should be. This is the way Lorenzo Snow wrote it. As man is, God once was. And as God is, man may become. Right. So gotcha. here in that couplet, we put God in the center. And again, here is the seven themes in Isaiah. And here you can see that from God's eyes, he puts us in his center. And that, to me, is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. It doesn't just happen in Isaiah. It happens all over the place. And we, we saw it in Psalm 8. And we, get, we see it in the stories. If we get into biblical astronomy, we see that the first four constellations are about the first coming of Christ. The last four are about the second coming of Christ. And the four in the middle are about his church. Yeah. He's put in, the, in the stories in the sky. We're in the center. And guess, in the feasts. The first three feasts are about the first coming of Christ. The last three appointed times are about the second coming of Christ. And guess who's in the middle? 
Pentecost. Time of the Gentiles, the church age, Pentecost. Okay, it's all over the place. All right. When you're looking at the names of the stars and the stories in the sky, the famous Sphinx in ancient Egypt is important because it points to where to where you begin to tell the story. I mean, you know, it's this big sky up there. Where do you start? Okay. And at the time, the Sphinx was carved about the time of the first intermediate period. The axis tilt of the earth and the procession of the equinoxes meant that at the time of the spring equinox, as the sun was rising, the Sphinx was pointed directly at the division between Virgo and Leo. So in that running path of the sun in Psalm 19, we start telling the stories in the sky at Virgo. Book one, these four constellations, starting with Virgo, will all represent the first coming of Christ. The next four actually represent the church. And the next four, the last four, represent the second coming of Christ. And that includes Leo tearing up Hydra, that dragon with many heads that we see in the book of Revelation. And we see even in the sky there with Leo. Um, I think I have it. I'll show you in just a minute. All right. So in one of the Psalms, it talks about Jesus being one of the sacrifices, uh, representing the sacrifices that were in the temple. And here we have a trespass offering. And it's really important to understand that with a trespass offering, only a ram could be used. That's why Aries is a ram. And that when you offered a trespass offering in the temple, you not only made the offering and confessed your sin, your trespass, but you also paid 20%. You made retribution. So there was no offering in the temple that represented unrepented sin. Every offering in the temple represented a repented sin. Every offering in the temple represented a repented sin. And the trespass offering specifically, but the point I was trying to make is that you can see it in the sky. There was a price that had to be paid for our sin. And in a way, free agency isn't free. Right. The battle fact, for the word, our agency, agency yeah, the battle for our agency was paid for with a high price, both in the Revolutionary War and in the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so in the constellation Libra, you have a star, Zubinel Ganubi, which means the price which is deficient. Say that again fast. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've said these before, you can tell, right? <laughs> I was going to say. I... <laughs> Zubinel Akrab is the price of the conflict, okay? But there's one more star in the constellation Libra. And I'm not making this up. These are ancient names of the stars and it's the names of the stars that tell the story do you have to pronounce it to believe it no (laughs) (laughs) i don't even know if i'm saying it right i've just said it a lot of times so zuvanal komali is the price which covers and that's your atonement star and the price that jesus christ paid in the constellation libra the balances the the judgment the scales right that justice is all right so in greek when Jesus was on the cross and he, his final words, you have to say it. You do it better than me. It is finished. Those were God's last words to mankind. Do you know what it means? You know what telestai means? Yeah, I do remember that. Paid in full. 
It wasn't free. He paid. That concept is just. He paid. He out suffered. of our reach a little bit because you know I've heard. I remember a conversation one time between somebody. We were talking about people's, you know, um, confusions and their mistakes and their stupidity. Stupidity. Well, that was a good word. <laughs> Stupidness, whatever. And he says, well, I don't want to have to pay for what they did. And I was thinking, well, but what if the Savior had taken that position? Right. Right. I'm so grateful. All right. So there's all kinds of stories in the sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. And day to day, they speak forth, and their speech is in every language. What's amazing is you get back to the ancient names of the stars, and it doesn't matter what it's called in, in, in one language or another language. Leo is a lion. Okay, whether you call him it, uh, by but a not different name. not because he lion. looks like a lion. No, not at all. Because those are what the names of the stars say that it's he the, is, right? The cumulative meaning of the stars right and so here's just an example with ophiuchus and serpents some of the names that star right in the in the head of ophiuchus ras al hagas means the head of him who holds down in his foot there's a star named saif it means the foot um it means the it means bruised where the scorpion is striking his foot right here the star shaleb means the serpent enfolding unik means encompassing and these each of these text boxes is flying right in right over top of the star that that's named that okay and another hebrew name is aliyah which means the accursed and the reptile that's why we know that's a serpent okay and then this one magaros which is not identified that means it's an ancient star called Megaros in the constellation that we don't know which one it was that they were talking about anymore. We've lost, but we know that they called a star in that constellation, Megaros, and it means contending. And Triopos means treading underfoot. So those are probably those stars there. Carnabas meant the wounding as well. So we see those down by Scorpio. In Revelation 3, 11, it says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. What is that serpent trying to reach? Right. And who is trying to stop him? Okay. Alpaca is the crown. <clears throat> this one actually kind of looks like a crown, but check out the name of the star, the shiny. First Peter chapter five, verse four. And when the chief shepherd shall or, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory. That fadeth not away. Let no man take your crown. That's the story of Ophiuchus. I'm going to take time for one more story. I know we're running long, but I, I think it's so cool. All right. In, in the constellation, Leo, we meant it. We talked about that for a minute. Zazma means the shining forth. That's in his back right there. We have Denebola, the judge or Lord who will come quickly in Leo. We have El, whoa, El Giba, Gieba. Yeah. You say that one. <laughs> yeah. I haven't got a chance. Because I'm not touching it. <laughs> Means the exaltation. Exactly what we were talking about. El Gaba. You can do that one. It sounds like uh, something that the genie on Aladdin would say. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got this one. I think I know you know this one. Oh, Regulus. Regulus, Regulus yes. King Star, it sure. means treading underfoot. And and in um, moderns call it Cor Leonis, the heart of the lion. 
Beautiful stuff going on here in the names of the stars. Sarkam, the joining indicating the point where the two ends of the zodiac have their joining. And we saw that. The Sphinx was pointing to their, that point. Okay, and then check this out. Right underneath, you see Leo's paws there at the top, top right there, his back paws right there. His front paws are on Hydra's head. It's shredding Hydra's head. And in this illustration, it doesn't show it, but in a lot of illustrations, Hydra has multiple heads, just like the beast in uh, Revelation. But Hydra is the serpent there. He takes up a third of the sky and the... A third of the host of heaven. Right. And then you have and the third of the stars that he casts down to the earth. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, the book of Revelation. Okay. And then Corvus, Corvus is a raven. That's the raven eating the pieces that's revelation 19. it says that the birds will come and eat the the in the battle of armageddon okay and then right there you see a cup the cup of the wrath being poured out in the end time this is all pictures or of the raven the raven tearing to pieces is what the star says it means which which goes back to psalms 19 where it says that he will write his story yeah, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day so after day, they're speaking forth. You do. It, it's a language that's mostly lost to us. But the truth of it is, it's it's telling the story. And, the whole plan and is written in the sky. I, I have to believe that probably, um, I mean, it's kind of attributed to Seth and to Abraham yes. a little bit. But I have to, to believe. And read quotes about that. But I have to believe that Adam um, created the story. Yes, and some people or at say, least recited the story or something. And Adam named the animals and everything. Right, but the scriptures are very clear God that named God the stars. named the stars. If you go back and get the the ancient names, and I'm clicking through some of them, the abhorred, um for Hydra and and the joining together, the accursed, the afflicted. Anyway, you you can study the names of the stars and in other presentations. But the point is, it's not random. They coordinate with the appointed times in the sky. That's why there's signs in the heavens in our day, in the end time. Heavenly Father even knew. Well, it's songs. like you said in past, and then we'll say it again. The Jews don't believe in in random. Right. They don't they believe don't. in coincidence. coincidence. Coincidence is not a kosher word. Meaning they believe, and you know when you this is way off rabbit trail, shiny object. When you understand um, the chaos theories and stuff, and you realize there really is no chaos, it's all just um, creation. Creation. Uh, it's it seems like chaos, but it's actually creation. Okay, so we're jumping over down to Psalm 20. I told you that Psalm 20 was in parallel um, with the the Davidic setup there, and then Psalm 24, right? With the Davidic setup there, and then Psalm 24, right there, the call to covenant faithfulness. Call to covenant faithfulness is in parallel with Psalm 15. And look at this. This is Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And then Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? So that is why they say Psalm 15 and 24 are in parallel. They're a call to covenantal faithfulness. And I, I just think it just blows your mind. So in the center of that is Psalm 19. But go back to Moses in the book of Abraham. Go back 
to when he saw his Redeemer and he showed him the, the creation of the world. We have the same kind of thing going on there as we do in Psalm 19 in the middle of the Torah. And I love this from Joseph Smith's translation of Luke 16. And why teach ye the law, speaking to the Jews at the time of Christ, why teach ye the law and deny that which is written and condemn him whom the Father hath sent to fulfill the law, that you, that you might be all redeemed? He is, Christ is the center. When you see Torah in the center, you think the one that fulfilled the law. Yeah. It was Christ. It's actually quite tragic in one sense, but in another, it's all orchestrated. There's no chaos, you know. It was all brought about to do exactly that point of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And some of that requires that struggle it requires, and this psalm is the prayer before the battle. Right. Okay. All right. And then Psalm 21 is the praise after the victory. Now, look at the word linking going on. These are, these are all code names in Isaiah. The wrath, the anger, those all represent the end time Antichrist and his hosts that are with him. And the right hand and the hand of God. This is all this Davidic figure in the end time. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. The name of God of Jacob defend thee. Now know I that the Lord saved his anointed. He will hear him from holy heaven and with the saving strength of his right hand. Why? For the king trusted the Lord. Yeah. And if they got saved, what can we assume? And the people honored the king. and honored the king. Faithful okay? to the king. And so the Lord will swallow so them up, the wicked up in his that, wrath. If we are faithful to Christ, he can save us. Right. And if we're faithful to our leaders, to the prophets of God on lower levels. And how about this? How about taking it all the way down to your home? If a father is faithful to God and his family is loyal to him, Guess what that is? It's a Davidic covenant. And protection will fall on that family. All right. In the next three, we're going to get a picture of Christ fulfilling the Davidic covenant. Watch this. In chapter in Psalm 22, we have Jesus suffering. He is on the he is on the cross 500 years before it really went down. Even before crucifixion was a thing, they still stoned to death when David wrote the song. He wrote that he was on the cross. He said yeah. he was on, on the cross, which could confuse You me. know what I meant. <laughs> I totally said it okay. <laughs> It's okay. I'm just trying to help. And then the next one we see is the shepherd. Hold the phone. The Lord is whose shepherd? My shepherd. Wait. Is Jesus putting us in his center again? We have his suffering on the one hand. Guess what Psalm 24 is? The king of glory. We have his descent and his ascent. And then he's, we've, he's stuck us right in the center. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me by the still waters. I just, okay, I don't know which one is my favorite. It, 
They're, they're, <laughs> we have they're another all favorite. So good. Okay, so let's just look at Psalm 22 really fast because because number one, Psalm 22 is written by David, but it doesn't seem to apply to David at all. David never got crucified. Okay, what is David talking about? Okay, now again, we're talking about David and the son of David Christ and the son of David that comes in the end time. Okay, it's all prophetic on multiple layers. And here David is prophesying of Jesus Christ in amazing ways. Look at this. This is Jesus in Psalm 24, right as he was ascending into heaven, what he told them, he said, all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Yeah, we kind of read over that. <laughs> Holy cow. And then it says, and, and I love this. This you can't, We can't leave the slide without this one. It, it, this is why Jesus suffered. It says it. He says, and I said, this is, this is why it behold Jesus to suffer. He's going to tell us why. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his names to the nations. He needed the gospel to be able to go out to people other than Israel. And they needed to be saved. And they would have to be, have to be covered by his grace or the law would condemn them. So he fulfilled the law for us. So that we can just have the blessings of the law. But that he would cover our sins if we repent. All right. So what was going on? You quoted this in your lesson on Job. You said, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And at that time, the veil in the temple was rent. That was Heavenly Father rending his, well, his that's garment. A, yeah, that's a Eastern tradition called, handed down to this day it's called carry yeah when they mourn they rent their garment father rent his garment from top to bottom and then look at this now get this this is the centurion wasn't there at the cross I, i'm I, i'm sorry the centurion didn't see the veil rent yeah was he was there at the cross. That, but... yeah <laughs> keep saying it backwards i'm trying to hurry okay and so he the the centurion stood and saw Jesus, and he saw that when Jesus cried out, and then when Jesus cried out, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. So we're going to go to Mark 15. What did Jesus cry out? And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. This is, this is what you were saying. My God, you did my it better God, than me. why hast thou forsaken me? Now, why would Jesus saying that Probably shouldn't take the time, but here it is. Eloi, Eloi, is short form Father. of Elohim. It is, it is God. God. It is God, God, singular instead of instead of plural like Elohim, meaning God. directly. He's referring to the Father, not my God, not the corn. He's referring to, to his personal Father, father. Daddy, Dad, yeah, yeah. Why? Okay. Now, that's beautiful in and of itself. But by Jesus saying that, the centurion at the cross said, truly, this was the Son of God. What was there about that that made him say, truly, this was the Son of God? I'm not sure where you were thinking of Psalm going. 22, verse 1. Oh, yes, for sure. It's, he's repeating first person, but I... 
my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is the first verse of Psalm 22. When in Hebrew you quote the first verse of a song, it's the title of the It's like the title of the song. It brings the whole song to mind. Like if I sang, Come, come, ye saints. Yeah. Everybody would think pioneers, bring me young, crossing the plains. I don't need to tell you all is well. You, you already heard that. You heard it in your head when I sang that. Okay? So when Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of Psalm 22 came to the mind of the Roman centurion. Obviously, he was not just a pagan Roman. And something in Psalm 22 made him know that that man on the cross was God. The content. Like this. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. They pierce my hands and feet. They are, this is a description of, of a crucifixion that the Roman centurion just saw. But wait a minute. There's lots of guys that are crucified. How about this? I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. When you hang on a cross, your bones pull out of joint. They part my garments among them and cast lots on my vesture. What did he just see? And so what, you, what, what you're alluding to, and it's absolutely on track, is that we had a first-person record of what Christ would say on the cross 500 years before it happened no a thousand was david a thousand years before yeah then? we're talking oh yeah you're right daniel was 500 years yeah i was right. gonna say thank you, you. Get your... thank you for fixing it um yeah you know me i mess up the numbers but it's recorded in the scripture exactly what he's saying on the cross and we could just go into detail david, after detail after uh, detail of that david as the type of a davidic king the one that didn't make it He's telling about the one that will. And he is one of the, I think he is the only prophet that speaks in prophecy in the first person of oh, God as he is being Back crucified. to your beginning. Like into my own heart. Almost yeah. quoting his own words. The reason David was a man after God's own heart it's because he would be faithful to God in his suffering on behalf of Jerusalem and his people. And, yet, and such a tragedy. Personally, that. But as a king. But as a king, he is beloved of the Jewish people to yes. this day. Okay? He is the type of Christ, except for Christ did it faithfully. He, but he is the, the first of the Davidic kings. How about this one in Psalm 22, verses 24? I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify, glorify him and fear him. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. 
But when he cried unto him, he heard. And because the Father heard, we are saved. This is not justice. This is mercy and love on an incomprehensible scale. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. And yet, because he willingly did it, it did satisfy justice. Yes. And he paid the price of yes. the justice. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Check this out. This is all the places in the New Testament that they're quoting. Psalm 22. So one of the reasons that we know that some of the Psalms are Messianic is because they're quoted directly in the New Testament as being Messianic Psalms. Right. And so they're going to actually classify a bunch of them as Messianic, including 22, 23, and 24. And all the earth, all the ends of the earth, this is further on in Psalm 22, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord for the kingdom is the Lord's. This is the blood, of my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that blood covenant is a Davidic covenant. Suffering, humiliation. Before exaltation. Exaltation and salvation. Joseph Smith saying we will go from exaltation to exaltation. It's... He already had his crown, and yet he was given a bigger crown. Yeah. In Psalm 23, right in the middle, between the King of Glory and the Suffering Savior, we have the, she the Shepherd's Psalm. I don't have time to go into the Shepherd's Psalm in detail. I want to just tell you a few things about it. I have it memorized because it is so near to my heart. You should memorize it. Um, we could do a whole lesson on why he's the shepherd and where the sheep. Because sheep are kind of stupid, just so you know. And there's a book by Maryland Peoples called um, All We Like Sheep. And you can, the, the metaphors between why he is our shepherd and why we need him are amazing that's a whole fun thing this video clip that you see a picture of right here all you have to do is type in 23rd psalm and you'll see this little dot and line and i absolutely love this because they read psalm 23 and the little dot and the little line act out psalm 23 <laughs> and it is the cool i wish i could show it to you guys but i can't for copyright but if you go online and, and type in Psalm 23 and look for the little dot and the line and, and just watch it, it's only a couple minutes long. Um, but the, the other thing that I wanted to say about Psalm 23 is that it is a psalm of ascent. In the ancient temples, when they would go up the stairs, the Nicanor stairs, up to the priest's court from the women's court, they would sing psalms and and this psalm if, if you look at it from its its beginning i'm laying down in green pastures and and you know, sheep are scared of running water because if a sheep falls into water his wool he, he can't swim out he will drown and so sheep are scared of running water they have to be led by still waters the mercy and grace and of the shepherd in this psalm it, you got to study sheep sheep to appreciate it <laughs> 
okay? But notice that it says that he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness, and though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And then as we, then we ascend. We ascend past the table, the table of the sacrament that he's serving us in the presence of his, our enemies. Then he's anointing our head with oil. What is that? And then my cup runneth over with blessings, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is huge as we ascend in the temple of the Lord in Psalm 23. Wow. Okay. Psalm 24. Psalm, we have to do the three Savior Psalms. They're, they're huge. Psalm 24, the King of Glory. This is the psalm that the one of the psalms that the Levites sang. They had a psalm for every day of the week that they sang every day, of, every time it was that day of the week. And this psalm is the one the Levites sang on the first day of the week. Okay, the King of Glory. And is what it says. It says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? We read that. Who shall stand in the holy place? And then it goes on, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart to come up to the temple. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That is what they were singing the the day that Jesus rode into the temple on a donkey. The king of glory shall come in. You can tie all of these songs. Each one of these psalms that they sang at the temple on each day of the week represented one of the seven days of creation. And on day one, we have the light. And anyway, I don't have time to tie it all together. God divided the light from the darkness. And here we have um, the learning the difference between light and darkness is all pictured in the symbology in the temple and each psalm that they sang the first thousand years of the earth's existence. There's actually things that happened during that period of time, the fall of Adam and Eve in that first thousand years that was learning the difference between good and evil, separating of light and dark. There's all kinds of parallels you can you can do. 25 is an example of an acrostic, and they they uh, they seem to be written to be easily learned and remembered by by people as they try to memorize these psalms. Here you can see that Psalm 9, 10, 25, uh, 37 are all acrostic and also um, Psalm 119, which we'll go into in detail. I just wanted you to see it right here. Here is the Psalm in English. And then the Psalm in Hebrew is on the left-hand side. And if you just sing your little, and if you just sing your little alphabet here, I always did mine with, I always sang mine to Yankee Doodle just to help me remember the alphabet. So don't laugh at me, but here we go. Here we go. Aleph, Bait, and Gimel, Dalit, Hey, and Vav. Vav is missing. See, I don't know Hebrew very well, but I knew that Vav was missing because it goes, Hey, and Vav and Zayin. Okay. And so Vav is missing there. And then it goes, Chet, and Tet, and Yon, and Kafla, Med, Mem, Nun, Samak, Ayin. They're all there. Okay. So now we have Aleph, Pei, and Lamed in the middle. Okay? So we just spelled out Aleph, which means to learn. Huh. Okay, but wait a minute. There was missing ones, and there was added ones. Verse 2 repeated the Aleph, and then used the Bet. So we have, we're going to take at the top here, and I'm for, first full hurry, we're going to take the top one, it's the three missing letters, and we're going to take the bottom one, it's the three extra letters. Read the red part. 
If you put the three missing letters together, Vav and Sheen, they spell the word repent. And if, which is uh, Shuv. And if you put the three extra letters together, Aleph, Resh, and Pei, they spell healer. If you look at learn and repent and healer and go to Isaiah 6.10, you have the formula for being saved. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and learn, understand with their heart. Two, repent, be converted. Three, three, be healed. Well, that's pretty cool. I got it. Okay, so I'm I'm just telling you guys we we're way over time and and I, but these psalms are so cool. They're they are as deep as the ocean. Okay. We're going to just run through the rest of them as fast as we can. We're not all of them. We're skipping. We're, we're going to only do three more, actually. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is Psalm 27. We love it. We've heard the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We used to have a hymn. Well, Lord, yeah. We well, have I haven't a, seen it for a while. Oh, Maybe it's, it's there. Yeah. It's probably still there. I just We don't sing it as often. Anyway. Anyway. It's it's another one of our beautiful hymns. There's so many of our hymns based on Psalms. But I love what John Knox said. He said, with one with God is a majority. And then look what Cromwell Selwyn said when he was didn't why asked why he didn't fear anyone. He said, I have learned that if you fear God, you have no one else to fear. This is I mean, oh there there's so much history connected with the Psalms, okay? Um we're we're talking about the hiding place that in the secret of his tabernacle he will hide me there, he'll set me upon a rock, hide me in his pavilion. That is gonna be a super big theme in the book of Psalms. Why? Well, the Jews actually thought that if they hid in the temple during the destructions that they would be protected because of a lot of these psalms. Because they thought that the temple would protect them, yeah. Right, and, and uh, and you have to put the righteousness underneath that. You have to put the broken heart and the contrite spirit, excuse me, with it. But the point that I wanted to make is right here. Look at verse 8. This is such a beautiful verse because it tells you why we go to the temple. When thou sayest, seek ye my face, my heart, David's heart, said unto thee, thy face, Lord, I will seek. Okay. Why is this all so okay? Why is this all so important? The last verse is wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. Isaiah didn't make this up. Throughout the book of Isaiah, it's wait on the Lord. Through this suffering, through this half hour of silence, through this end time, wait on the Lord. Be faithful. Trust him. It's part of the plan. Now, again, we talked about these Psalms, how it didn't matter which generation, whether you were David yearning for the temple that he would be built by Solomon, or whether you were here in Solomon's temple, you could sing these songs about being hid in the tabernacle. Here in Herod's temple, we are still seeking God's face and finding it in Christ there on Temple Mount. This is Ezekiel's temple that they're yearning for to this day that... We don't understand that the heart of the people is in the Davidic covenant and the temple that represents the Davidic covenant. Okay? Or the saints running for the temple in Kirtland. Or saints today seeking the face of God in the temples. Zephaniah chapter 2 also talks about this hiding 
in the day of the Lord. This tabernacle sanctuary in which people hide. It says, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth. This is a time of the Lord's anger, which we remember we established in Psalms, and Isaiah uses it too, is not God being mad. Yes, God is, the cup of iniquity is full on the wickedness, time for judgment, which means God's anger is going to happen. The bad guys are going to come in, going to get the stripes of men. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be that ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And I put these ones in here because they're so applicable to us. Here it is in Isaiah 26. Come, O my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves a little while until the wrath is past. So is he saying everybody hide in the temple? No. We have Latter-day Scripture that tells us what all of this hiding come to the pavilion during the time of wrath is about. This is a paragraph from the book that we're writing right now on Daniel's numbers that we're almost, almost done editing. Could the place which I shall prepare, that's mentioned in Pearl of Great Price in Moses 7, called Zion, a new Jerusalem, be the same place that's described in Revelation 12, when the woman that's bringing forth the child of the kingdom of God and his Christ flees to the wilderness to a place prepared of God? So this place becomes a linking word in Latter-day prophecy to the establishment of Zion, the New Jerusalem, Article of Faith number 10, on this, the American continent. Why did the gospel have to be restored through the prophet Joseph Smith and the foundation laid and the commencement of the gathering of Israel begin so that Zion could be built when it was time? As a place that would be prepared of God, a place that he would prepare. In Revelation 12, 14, she's given two wings of an eagle, eagle, symbolizing translation, that she might fly into the wilderness into a place where she's nourished for time, time to a place where she's nourished for time, times, and half a time. That you might be hid from the wrath. That's part of the mission, is that we will build a temple, just like the Jews are going to build a temple. Psalm 31. This one is a funeral psalm. And the reason I'm, I wanted to talk about it, touch on it really quickly, is because it is so famous. Oh, in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Thou art my rock and my fortress. Into thy hand I commend my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Absolutely. How about this? Into thy hand I do commend my spirit. That is what Jesus said on the cross. He was quoting Psalm 31. But it is also what Stephen, the first martyr of the church in Acts 7, said when he was being stoned. It is what Polycarp said when he was being burned at the stake. St. Basil, St. Augustine, Charlemagne, John Huss said, I commit my spirit into thy hands. Lord Jesus Christ, as he was burned at the stake, unto thee I commend my spirit, whom thou hast redeemed. We don't have time to go through them all. Martin Luther said those that he wishes that those that were living would commit their spirit into the hand of Christ. But look at what John has said. Therefore, faithful Christian, seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Learn the truth. Love the truth. Tell the truth. Learn the truth.
defend the truth, even to death. And they did. Psalm 31, the martyr's psalm. 32. Psalm 32 now is one of the psalms of what we call penitence. This is when David is pleading for forgiveness and, and rejoicing in the forgiveness of his sin. So applicable to any of us today. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now they're going to use Selah. Selah throughout a lot of these psalms. Selah, they used to think it was a musical term, but now that they know it's more about the um, the subject matter than it is a musical term. And it just means stop and contemplate. Stop and listen. It, it's a break in the poetry. And it connects what was in the previous to what comes after. Okay, It says, um, I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not yet. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. And thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And this is what Corey Ten Boom and the whole book, The Hiding Place, comes from this verse. And this was the psalm that held them through the, um, this held them through the Holocaust, and we have fireworks going off in the background. <laughs> All right, Psalm 40, um, we've got the Messianic Psalm again, and uh, of course, you're going to have to go through these. You're going to have to meditate on these Psalms. Meditate means to read them over and over again, to read them until they're part of your heart. I love the fact that all the clean animals in the temple chew the cud. They chew and chew and chew until it becomes part of them. Look at all these messianic psalms. We know that these are messianic psalms. Look at the psalms 2, 8, 110, all these ones that we'll be looking at in the future. Psalm 22, 69, 34, 68, 45. All of these psalms are messianic psalms. I waited patiently. Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm. The reason this is one of the main ones that they list is because not only does he say that he is the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb that was offered in the temple, he said, Lo, I come, and the volume of the book is written of me. And look what Jesus Christ says. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written within my heart. So again, this is prophetic. This is messianic and Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. Thy thoughts, and this is that verse I was talking to you earlier that said, God thinks about us all the time. Look what he says. Thy thoughts which are toward us, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. I mean, I can't count them. If I would declare and speak them, they are more than can be numbered. This is the God. This is the the God of the universe. He has a quickening. Yeah. He's in a higher dimension than we are, yes. obviously. All right? And the reason that we know that this is all a messianic psalm is because it's quoted by Paul in Hebrews 10. Jacob 7. And I said unto him, Blessed, believest thou the scriptures? He's talking to Sherem and, and Jacob 7. And he said, Yea. And I said unto him, Then you do not understand them, for they truly testify of Christ. The volume of the book is written of me. John 5, search the scriptures, 
for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Yeah. He is the law. Second Nephi 11. Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world are typifying of him. And our last song is going to be one that's going to introduce the Psalms of the Messianic Millennial Kingdom. And again, there's a beautiful song um, on Psalm 46. Just type in Psalm 46 and, and you, you can listen to some amazing renditions of these beautiful Psalms. He is our very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake, with the swelling thereof. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. This is the end time. This is messianic end time prophecy. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Weapons being destroyed. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And we're going to end here with one from Psalm 31. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which spake grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion. In Hebrew, that word is sukkah, a tabernacle, like is celebrated in the Feast of Tabernacles, from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shewed me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. Isaiah picks up on the whole imagery of the city, the good city and the bad city in Psalm 31. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. Oh, love the Lord, all ye his saints. For the Lord preserveth the faithful and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. All ye that hope, and I'm going to add, and wait. Ye that hope, and I'm going to add, and wait on the Lord. Through suffering that exaltation might follow. And we're going to talk about the hope of the temple and the hope of that restoration during a time of exile in the next book of Psalms lesson, which is going to cover Psalms book two and three. Good luck with that. Mm. <laughs> it's your turn. Well, I could uh, say that, you know, I sometimes... Uh, take a little tangent from time to time but anyway it's been good to be here i i always is forever the scriptures the word of god is beautiful and thank you and till next time declare the glory of god yeah declare love the psalms sing those psalms meditate on those psalms we got two more weeks of songs praise god okay thank you next time